We'll be reading in the Word of God this morning from John chapter 14. John 14, verses 1 through 17. This is Jesus talking to his disciples still in the upper room and preparing them for his departure and things that are going to come that they don't understand yet. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I'm not speaking on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Well, this morning will be just a little bit different than our normal practice as John and Connie are away this weekend enjoying God's creation in beautiful Colorado. So this morning I'm going to present a topical message dealing with the works of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and I'm praying that it will bring encouragement and hope and strengthen your faith this morning through the faithful preaching of God's Word. Well, a few years ago I was asked by an area church to help them look at implementing biblical plurality of elders into their church. They were wanting to change their church government. And my counsel at the time was rather than focusing on setting that out before the people initially promoting a plurality of elders to first establish and make sure the church was well-grounded in the fact that God's word, the Bible, is the truth. <laughs> And by being the truth, it is also authoritative because it is authored by our Creator in whom we will give an account. And once the people, just as we in our own personal lives with whatever issues we're dealing with, when we understand that the Word of God is truth and that it is authoritative and we are accountable and responsible to follow that in obedience to the glory of our Savior, that that is the proper way to approach items or different issues in life, starting with the source of the truth, which is God's Word. Well, we know that the truth has been under particular attack coming up now on three years. Uh, we have all witnessed that every major institution in our society has been corrupted and are basically untruthful and lying to us. That is indisputable now through facts that are easily proven by anybody who would like to examine the evidence. Uh, whether it be the medical community, 
whether it be law enforcement and justice, whether it is the media, academia, even the church to some degree. And again, as this relativism has invaded our culture, unfortunately, it has also come into the church, and it must be addressed. As we saw in our study some time back in the book of Jude, that we are to contend earnestly and stand firm for that truth, that doctrine, that body of truth contained in the Scripture that was once delivered for all. And as we've seen in part of our Act Like Men class, that part of the definition of a godly man is to stand unwavering and firm in God's truth regardless of the consequences of whether or not it's accepted. As Paul wrote to Timothy, there's going to be points in time and throughout church history where preaching will be received or not received. It's in season or out of season. Well, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And I'm going to making reference to several scriptural passages. If you would like the actual references, I'm not going to name every one of them this morning, but I have that available if you would like that later on. Well, by definition, there is truth and there is untruth. That is, there are things that are true and there are things that are not true. And Satan is the author of that which is not true. The father of lies and of falsehoods. According to John chapter 8, verse 44, we're told that there is no truth in him, that he is a liar, and the father of lies. In contrast, Jesus said, I speak the truth. And with that in mind, essentially all constructs of thought are either true or they're, they're not true. There's no middle ground as claimed by postmodern culture in which we live today, that everything's gray, nothing's black and white. And that's simply not true. That's a a lie of the devil. And with regard to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, he is the author of God's word, and God's word is true. Peter writes, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation or origin For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And that's in 2 Peter. And when these prophets spoke, they didn't give their own private interpretation or explanation of things, nor did they offer their own opinions or conclusions about matters. In short, Scripture is God's Word. That's how we refer to it, the Word of God. And it was revealed by the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's critically important that you as believers and followers, disciples of Christ, not see in, in any way whatsoever that Scripture is the product of man's thinking or the result of human imagination and, and speculation. It is God's very word. And in some way we can't fully understand, at least I can't, how the Holy Spirit directed these men, these, these 40 authors, basically human authors, if you will, of the Bible over a period of about 1,500 years to write the 66 books that we have contained there on your lap or in your phone, that somehow the Holy Spirit directed these men as to the very words uh, they were to speak and write while at the same time not destroying their individuality or their particular style of, of writing. And regarding this, this concept, again, which is foreign to people today in our modern culture, the importance of truth and scripture, consider the following passages. And I want you to listen, listen as I build my case and lay my foundation as we move on <laughs> to how many times if you did a word search or a word study on truth in the scripture. It's, it's over and over. And I just want to remind you of some of the passages in which you're probably quite familiar, but just, again, to bring them to the forefront of our mind and understanding as we make application. What David writes, the judgments of the Lord are true. And thus said the Lord to Jeremiah, the Lord is the true God. Nebuchadnezzar, remember him, the the king of Babylon, after the Lord dealt with him. This is how he responded Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, 
Praise and exalt and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And you know from the account of Nebuchadnezzar's life how the Lord brought that about. Well, John writes that there was true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He also wrote the testimony of God the Father concerning his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ is true. Jesus is the true bread which the Father has given us out of heaven. In the very words of our Lord, he said, My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Jesus said, My witness, that is my testimony, my words are true. My judgment is true, he said. He also said, I am the true vine in John 15. And Jesus also said, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And the Apostle John, again writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, concluded his Gospels with these words. We bear witness of these things, and we know that Jesus' witness is true. So these are just a sampling. The Apostle Paul wrote, whatever is true let your mind dwell on these things. Philippians 4.8, we refer to that as the think list, our thinking list. Dwell on that. Ponder on that. Consider those things which are true. Our new self is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Paul wrote that in Colossians. Paul also wrote, you, you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Peter writes, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. John writes, The Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true. This is the true God and eternal life. So not only human authors, I'll cite the exclamation of the angels in heaven. Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways. I'm in the book of Revelation now. Righteous and true are thy judgments. The Apostle John, as we know, he saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, referring to our Lord. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new, right, for these words are faithful and true. This ought to bring great encouragement to our hearts this morning. Recall in the Old Testament, when Moses ascended Mount Sinai, a second time he had to go up there to get the new tablets of stone written on by the finger of the Lord. Remember, Moses, in anger, had thrown the tablets down, had broken the original ones. And the Lord spoke to Moses, and here are the words of the Almighty to Moses. The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, is slow to anger and abounds in loving kindness and truth. Recall when Joshua, he gathered all the tribes of Israel. He gathered them there in Shechem after conquering the land of Canaan. And this is what Joshua said to the people. And I know some of you have this on your, uh, on your front doors. Now fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And if that's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he is serving them in sincerity and truth. Samuel's charge to the people was, Fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. Consider what great things he's done for you. King David magnified the Lord with these words, O Lord, thou art God and thy words are truth. Remember what David also wrote, Thou desirest truth in the innermost part of our being. And David prays, teach me thy way, O Lord, that I would walk in thy truth. Solomon writes to his sons. Proverbs is full of these things. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. The word of the Lord to Zechariah. Love, truth, and peace. 
We're living in a world that does not love truth. The Apostle John writes, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory full of grace and truth. And we are to worship our Lord as we have this morning in spirit and in truth. Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Likewise, Jesus said, as we heard this morning, as Jim read us God's word, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Remember, as Jesus was praying before his arrest, which led to his crucifixion, Jesus said of the Father, Thy word is truth. When Pilate questioned Jesus, recall that question. What is truth? That's where we find ourselves today. What is truth? Many people today are seeking truth. They've realized that they've been lied to. (laughs) They've been deceived. They've been fed propaganda and lies. They're seeking the truth and what is truth. And we're also told, according to words God or the word of God, that unbelievers suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's what the natural man does, the mind that's at enmity with God. They receive that truth, if you will, or hear it proclaimed, and they suppress it. And again, that Greek word there that's used for that suppression is the idea of a wrestler actively and aggressively pushing an opponent into the mat. It's just not a passive act. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. We see that being played out right before our very eyes. Paul exhorts the believer to speak the truth in love. Gird your loins with the truth. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. We are to handle accurately the word of truth. Writes James, we were brought forth by the word of truth. And listen to this, and we, Jim read it for us this morning. Lastly, Jesus often used the following grammatical construction when teaching. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you. And he's emphasizing that. The repetition of that word truly makes those statements the most emphatic statements Jesus made during his earthly ministry. And we would be wise to heed the warnings and commands of our Lord when he says, truly, truly. And those are promises you can bank on when he says that. Well, I just wanted to lay a foundation and give you just a a brief overview of truth in Scripture. And now, with an understanding of that and reverence and respect for God's Word, that's why we have people stand when we read read God's Word. (laughs) That's why we need to pay attention and show respect and honor. These are the very words of God, our Creator. Well, there's a number of passages in the New Testament that describe the ministry and works of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives as believers. Well, John 16, verse 8. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin of righteousness and judgment. That's part of the work of the third person of the Trinity. He convicts the world of sin in the sense of failing to believe on Christ, who is worthy of belief. (laughs) He is true. But lost men simply refuse. They're blind to that truth. They don't have eyes to see, ears to hear. They don't have a desire or a will to follow in obedience. Their minds are at enmity with God. They're enemies of God. They're haters of God. The Scripture says there's none seeking after Him. That's our natural condition apart from God's mercy and grace in our lives. The Lord claimed to be righteous, but many said He had a demon. The works of righteousness He did, they were giving credit to demonic forces. That's how wicked and warped natural man's mind is towards the truth. The Holy Spirit also convicts the world of coming judgment. 
It is the Holy Spirit who testifies to this truth. The Spirit brings conviction that leads some to salvation, to eternal life. To others, it's eternal damnation. They willingly choose to refuse to believe. To deny these truths of God's Word when it's presented as to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit and never experience forgiveness. The essence of denying the truth is being guilty of eternal sin, according to Mark chapter 3. And when the Holy Spirit convicts the, the mind of this truth, we are without excuse if we reject this revelation. It's not only that we know that there is a God, according to Romans 1 through creation, and also Romans 2 talking about our conscience. But there are many who sit under the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word or hearing God's word and yet willingly refuse to turn from their sin and bow the knee in worship of the true Lord and the true and living God. One of the primary functions of the Holy Spirit is to testify to Jesus Christ. Acts 16, 14, the Holy Spirit is the one who opens the heart of individuals to believe the gospel. It's not human effort. It's not how smart you are or how wise you are. It's a gracious work of God. Think of Lydia. The scripture clearly teaches it was the Lord who opened her heart to receive these things. Believing is a product of divine revelation. It's a product of the work of the Holy Spirit to open the mind and the heart to receive Christ and see the good news. And when you share the good news of the gospel, just remember this. Of this you can be certain. Their conscience is on your side. Unless God's given over them to a depraved heart. They have to willingly deny the message of the Spirit to their conscience when they reject the gospel. Our call and our responsibility is to be faithful in preaching that. The truth of the gospel. Trusting in the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and conversion. We don't have the power to do that. We're not, even, we're not commanded to do that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But yet at the same time, we have to be faithful to that gospel that was delivered. Not water it down. Not fall prey to easy believism. Not fall into postmodern thinking. We need to stand firm on the truth and proclaim that boldly from the pulpit. And we need to do it privately. And biblical men don't shy away from that. Godly men. They've been commissioned. And they're obeying the orders of their commander. John 3.6, the Holy Spirit is the one who affects the new birth in Christ. You recall where Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. He didn't understand that. How can this be? And Jesus said, you, a teacher of the law, don't understand these things? That's again, just shows you he's a very intelligent, educated, trained man. But he didn't see that as his own natural ability. And he said, it's the Spirit sovereignly moves. You must be born from above. Born again, where we get that phrase from, in order to see or perceive the kingdom of God. You can't do that through natural eyes. Believers are, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, we are new creations in Christ. The power that created the world that we're living in is the power of God to bring life to people that are dead in their trespasses and sin. Remember how Jesus described it like the wind to Nicodemus. You can't see the wind, but you can see what it does, and you can't control the wind. Think in your own life of conversion, and maybe you heard the gospel several times before, but you never came to a saving faith, and then all of a sudden the Spirit moved, gave you life. Just so you understand biblically the order of salvation, we must be regenerated first. And the evidence of that regeneration is turning in repentance away from your sin and turning in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the only Savior 
who can reconcile us to our holy God that we violated his law. So the Spirit comes, makes us alive where we were dead in our trespasses and sin in response to being made alive. A dead man cannot behold the brilliance of the noonday sun if he's blind. You cannot hear the loudest noise if you're deaf. But once you're given sight, you're given ears to hear the gospel. You behold the beauty of Christ. The Spirit has convicted you of your sin. You know you have violated God's holy law. You willingly turn as a gift of God's grace in faith, trusting in Christ alone for what he's done, and turn from your sin. That's God's gracious work of salvation. That's the good news that we preach. The Holy Spirit illumines the mind to understand the truth with full conviction. That's what I was just telling you. That's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. And then when we're brought to life, born from above, regenerated, Romans 6, 3 says, the Holy Spirit baptizes the believer into Jesus Christ. We're made one with Him. We're in union. We can't reconcile ourselves to God. We've been given this gospel of grace, this ministry of reconciliation to share with the world. There's hope for sinners that are suffering and hurting and under condemnation. You can be reconciled to God, but not through your own works of the flesh or your own self-righteousness. It's by the grace of God. Turn and believe on Jesus Christ alone. He will not reject any who come unto him. That's the word we have to preach. The Holy Spirit places us in Christ. The concept of being in Christ was one of the Apostle Paul's favorite teachings. In Christ. I'm in Christ. I identify because of who I am in Christ. I don't need your approval. (laughs) I don't need your accepted because I'm accepted in the beloved according to the word of God. I don't need to have a fear of man and what people think about me because I'm improved by God. God says I'm clothed in the righteousness of his son, that I stand blameless before the throne. And that's hard for us to accept because we're so fleshly oriented and works oriented. That's the amazing grace of God. However vile you've been, however wicked. At the cross, Christ paid for that in full. If you're here this morning... And if you think you're beyond the grace of God, it's your pride that's telling you that, not the Word of God. Paul writes in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit ministers life and peace to God's people. You don't have peace. If you don't have peace, is the Spirit in your life because He is the one that ministers that life of peace. The Spirit is the guarantee of life. As believers, we now have peace with God. Again, we were talking earlier out in the hallway about verb tenses and how start talking about grammatical things. People's eyes glass over and they get bored. And it's so important. <laughs> because the verb tense, we have peace. It's completed. It's done. We're at peace with God. The word peace literally means joining together that which has been separated. We were once at war. We were enemies of war. And you want to see the love of Christ portrayed and the love of God towards sinners. Understand that while we were yet sinners and his enemies, Christ died for us. That's love. The scripture says God is love. That's love. Again, God loves the unlovely. That's an agape love, as John has taught us before. That's not a human love where we love something that we find attractive or something that benefits us. It's not rooted in a feeling and an emotion. It's rooted in action. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Biblical love is wanting the best and doing the best for someone else. It's being other-focused, not self-focused. We're now at peace We've been reconciled. Romans 8 9, the Holy Spirit takes up permanent resonance in our life. He indwells every believer.
the believing community is that the body of Christ, the church, is being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. John's exposited that for us. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Also in Ephesians chapter 1, every believer is sealed in Christ with a promised Holy Spirit. He does that for every believer. It's not a special blessing. That is part of the definition of being in Christ, of being regenerated. The sealing implies security and permanence. That means it's not going away. Go to John 6. All that the Father has given me will come to me, and I will lose none of them up but raise them last day. That's a promise of the Almighty you can bank on. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That implies a security and a permanence. Paul goes on to describe the Holy Spirit as the pledge or the down payment, if you will, or the guarantee of our future internal inheritance that Christ has secured. We just heard, as, as, as Jim read, I go to prepare a place for you. And if it wasn't so, I, I wouldn't tell you that. He's faithful and true. His words can be trusted. You have an eternal hope that can't be swayed away from you. It can't be taken. No one can pluck you out of my hand or the Father's hand, he says. You've got this eternal inheritance that Christ has secured. Every spiritual blessing, we're told from the Word, is ours. We've been adopted, not only forgiven and justified, we've been adopted as sons into the family of God. This is truth. John 14, 26. Again, from our scripture reading this morning, the Holy Spirit helps and encourages us in the Christian life. The word help, parakletos, in the Greek is also translated encourage, comfort, strengthened. How many of us need, at times in this life, encouragement and comfort and strengthening? All of us. (laughs) The Lord himself referred to the Holy Spirit as our helper. You can't do it on your own. Acts 9, the Holy Spirit is the one who comforts us when life is difficult and painful. Again, you've heard me refer to that as those 3 o'clock in the morning times. There ain't nobody else around. But God's indwelling spirit is there with you if you've truly been born from above. You've been sealed with that spirit. He's there. Cry out to him. He is the one who comforts us when life is difficult and painful. And it is. We suffer adversity and afflictions. As good as we've got it materially where we live today, but we still have great sufferings. God's aware of our sufferings. And he's given us someone... Again, the disciples, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't understand when Jesus said, I'm going away. You would be terrified if someone you were depending on says, I'm going away. (laughs) But Jesus didn't just leave them like that. He said, I'm going to send another one just like me. He will lead you into the truth. He will be with you. And Jesus said, I'll never leave or forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. And he does that through his spirit. He's the one that ministers comfort to our soul. We can do that to a degree, but not like the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.13 is by the Holy Spirit that we're able to put to death the deeds of the flesh. You can't do it in your own strength. I wish it was. I would have saved myself time and hours in biblical counseling over the years if I could just tell people, toughen up, (laughs) pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work harder. I've worn myself out over the years on the performance treadmill. I can't do it. I can't change what I like and what I desire. Can a leopard change a spot? Can the Ethiopian change his skin? No, but God can. Nothing's impossible with God. These things are not possible with men. I wish I could just tell people to straighten up. I wish I could tell myself to straighten up. You know, like I tell people about the thought life, and I use this a lot in counseling class. 
I don't have an answer where the thoughts come from. Sometimes they come out of the blue in the middle of the night. I'll wake up in a state of panic. I talked about this particularly when my mom with her Alzheimer's and I had her down in Lawton 200 miles away, worried about all kinds of things that never happened. But the point is, I can't control how these thoughts or images or whatever pop into people's minds. I don't have an answer for that. If you have one, tell me. I could use it to help others tremendously. But I do tell them it's like a surfer. You you can't control the waves, but you can choose which one you're going to ride. And when you see that negative thought, discipline yourself under godliness in the set of thinking those things, flipping it, which are true. Because when you're anxious and you're worrying, you're thinking about things that aren't true. They haven't happened yet. And often they never do. It happened in my life. But I can testify that waking up in the middle of of the night, 3 o'clock in the morning, no one else around, me in the spirit, that I could find myself literally being calmed down by thinking on the promises of God, dwelling on that which was true. And for me, I would sing, Great is thy faithfulness to myself. And the faithfulness, and I could literally feel my blood pressure going down and able to drift back off into sleep. Trusting in God. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who comforts us. He helps us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Remember, the branch cannot bear fruit apart from the vine. John 15. You can't do it on your own. Without the presence of the Holy Spirit in your lives, the flesh would rule continuously. And it was doing that prior to conversion. Right now, we're living in Romans 7. I'll argue this with anybody. (laughs) And I know there's people that take different views on it. But I think the Word of God and life experience. That which I know I should do, I don't always do it. And that which I know that I should be doing, I don't always do that. And the other way around, I know I shouldn't do that. But sometimes my heart, it's not your will, Lord, but my will wants to reign. And that's a constant battle. Pray for one another. But also humble yourself knowing that other people are struggling with these things. That's what Paul did. There is no sinless perfectionism in this life regardless of what someone tells you. That's why we're looking to that day to enter into that eternal state. The Holy Spirit is the one that causes us to walk in God's way, not our human will. I'm a very disciplined person for the most part. I can't do it. And I'm pretty strong in the flesh when I set my mind to something. I can't do it apart from divine grace. If it could, I I would be able to do it. Can't be done. I had to remain humble and dependent on God's grace every day. Believing God's promises, not my own thinking. The Spirit causes us to obey God. Without the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we would not and could not walk in the ways of God. You might be externally able to do some things, but the Scripture clearly says without faith it's impossible to please God. And all your self-righteous external work are nothing but filthy rags. The only way to walk pleasing to God is in faith. Again, there's a lot of people that look good externally, but they're just nothing but whitewashed tombs. You know, you look real good on the outside, but inside you're stinking and rotting, and death dwells there. Romans 8.16, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's the one that brings confirmation. The assurance of salvation is the result of the indwelling Holy Spirit, not human feelings and emotions. Think about it. If if you're a person led by emotions and feelings, that dominates your life rather than faith. You're a miserable person for the most part because your circumstances dictate your feelings and emotions. And circumstances change on a whim. They're up and down day to day. But when you're built on the solid foundation of faith and the true word of God and 
biblical doctrine, you're not shaken when the storms come. And that's hard to get to that place. I struggle. But that's exactly what's going on. Some days you don't feel like you're saved. (laughs) Other days you feel really good. Matter of fact, you feel like patting yourself on your back. You're so good and God loves you so much because you've been so good. (laughs) And that's really nothing more than legalism. (laughs) That's all that is. That's just having confidence in the flesh, not in God's grace. I've been down that road. (laughs) So I'm speaking from experience, and for you young men or younger people out there, don't make the mistakes that I've made in life. I'm trying to warn you. (laughs) Romans 8.16, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit, again, that we're children of God. goes on in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit helps our weaknesses by interceding on our behalf before the Father in heaven and to do that and pray in accordance with his will because we're often perplexed in our prayer life. That's one thing that most of us struggle with is prayer life. We don't know how to pray. (laughs) You know, the disciples have to teach us how to pray. You know, we often pray very selfishly and we pray way too small. And once again, the Spirit comes alongside us, the paraclete, if you will, to assist us in our weakness in praying. Romans 14, peace and joy are ministered to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Peace and joy, those are both fruits of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. It's not a result of chemicals within our body that produce joy. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. That that joy is lasting. And I'm talking about a lasting joy, a lasting peace. Not one that could be artificially introduced. Romans 15, 13, the Holy Spirit gives us hope in the midst of adversity. Empower to walk righteously and do His will. All glory goes to God. The correlation is this, when our hope is a confident hope, according to Hebrews chapter 11, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk with Him. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling, we're told to do. You can't do that on your own. Even Jesus did the things in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus can't do it, and He's relying on the Holy Spirit to accomplish these things, you don't think you and I need that in our own our lives? Likewise, the ministries of the apostles were carried out in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, we're told. We're all dependent on the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, believers are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That is, sanctified being conformed to the image of Christ, being made into the likeness of Christ. And the transformation that takes place in our lives is accomplished by the indwelling presence and work of the Holy Spirit to make you like Jesus, which is the goal. Present every man complete in Christ, we're told to do. Make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. We're commanding you to do things that you can't do, but the grace of God through the power of the indwelling Spirit and His ministry can do it in your life. And he's, not only that, He said He will do it. Philippians 2 says, The Holy Spirit is at work in the life of every believer both to will and to do God's pleasure. That's part of the new heart, and I'm going to talk about that as we wrap it up. The new heart, a new disposition, a new affection, new understandings. I re, you know, I rejoice in God's law. I delight in the law of the Lord. Where, where once you hated it, God changed your desires. Like I say, you can't do it, I can't do it, but God can change our desires. Both to will, I willingly want to do that, and to get it accomplished. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is working our life of every believer both to will and to do God's pleasure. That's related to the fact that God's ordained an eternity past according to Ephesians 1, which we've already studied, that we are going to be conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 8. That is the words of the Almighty which are true and a promise that no man can thwart his purpose. He has determined the end from the beginning. He is the Alpha and Omega He will accomplish, his word will go forth and do everything that he has intended it to do, regardless of the will of man. He's sovereign over all. He's king of the universe. All authority has been given to me, Jesus said, 
on heaven and earth. The Holy Spirit teaches us God's way. He did that, first of all, through the spoken ministry of of the apostles and through the written word of God. We have it today. The Holy Spirit guides us in all truth. He's the revealer of that truth, the most significant in which are the deity of Christ, his incarnation, his lordship, as well as his death, his burial, his resurrection. His ascension. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to rightly understand, interpret, and apply God's Word. I've met some brilliant people in my lifetime. Have more letters behind their names than you can write out on a piece of paper. But that doesn't make them wise in God's eyes. He uses the foolish things of this world. They have no spiritual understanding of what really truth and reality are. They're deluded. They're believing a lie. And it's only the grace of God that reveals it to us, just like as they did to each of us. Well, as John has been teaching over the past few weeks on spiritual gifts, every spiritual gift we possess is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. You know, spiritual gifts, as John explained, are divine enablements given to us for the express purpose of ministering God's grace, God's truth, God's love, God's mercy. The Spirit gives gifts to every believer that they might help accomplish the tasks that they've been given. My task might be different than your task, but God will enable you and gift you and empower you to accomplish what he's called you to do. It's the work of the Holy Spirit who gives wisdom. The wisdom to understand the various circumstances in which we find ourselves and other people. The power to speak to various issues with divine insight and application. This is your situation according to God's word. God's word says this is what you need to do. Walk in righteousness and holiness through the power of the Holy Spirit. Seek him. It's the Holy Spirit who gives faith. I've already talked about that. It's undeniable, Ephesians chapter 2. The faith to overcome the difficulties of this life, the adversities that we face by responding to them in a Christ-like manner in accord with God's promises and his divine revealed truth. Faith is a gift of God's grace. Faith originates with God, and it's that virtue whereby we live a life that's pleasing to him because it's impossible to please him without faith. He's got to give us the faith. You know, I said, I'm like the Father in Mark 9. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief at times. And you can trace a lot of your problems in life, anxiety, depression, because of lack of faith. I'm not trusting in God. I'm trusting in me. Or I'm hoping my circumstances make me have peace and joy, not God. I mean, think about it. How, does, how do you sit in prison and rejoice? Most of us wouldn't do that. They were able to sing and have joy in the midst of terrible circumstances. The Holy Spirit, who's transforming us into the image of Christ, not ourselves. The present tense of that verb, and again, this is where the grammar gets important, so don't let your eyes gloss over. Don't let me lose you here. The present tense of the verb stresses the fact that we're in a state of continual transformation. It's ongoing, progressive sanctification. The passive voice of the verb stresses the fact that it's the Holy Spirit who's transforming us, not ourselves. And the indicative mood of the verb stresses the fact that it's unconditional, absolute reality. That means it's going to happen. It's a promise from the Almighty who cannot lie. Have hope. Take encouragement, believer. It's happening in your life. Maybe not to the degree and the speed you would like it. God's in charge of that. You walk in obedience. Follow Him. Galatians 5.16, when we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. That's pretty simple. (laughs) Oftentimes I find myself in the flesh, though. I guess right back to Romans 7. But I also know when I do sin, and it says if you don't have sin, if you don't claim you're having sin, you're a liar. And that equates you with the devil. 
But when you do sin, you repent and confess, and God is faithful and just to forgive us because of what his son has done on our behalf. When we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And apart from walking in the Spirit, we will carry out the desires of the flesh. And when you think of flesh, if that's difficult to understand that concept, just think of self. Self Self-centered, self-absorbed, self-focused. That's a good way of understanding what the flesh does. It's all about me. To walk in the Spirit is to have the truth of God's Word rule in our soul rather than our sin nature. You know, we're commi- be filled with the Spirit. It's an active voice of the verb, means an action in what we as believers must do. The believer who is filled with the Holy Spirit is occupied with Christ and not with himself. That's how you know I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm not occupied every thought about me or how is it going to work out for me, what's best for me. I have a love for Christ and love for others. I want the best for them, and I'm willing to put it into action. Galatians chapter 5, it's the Holy Spirit who makes our lives fruitful when we walk by the Spirit. That is, when we're abiding in Christ in the vine. Bearing fruit occurs when we abide in the vine. Then, you, of yourselves, you can do nothing. So when a person lives according to the Spirit's leading, his life will bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And again, that fruit is produced by the Holy Spirit, not human effort. In and of ourselves, again, we can do nothing. The Scripture is clear on that, John fifteen five. The flesh is simply not capable of producing such fruit. It can come up with counterfeits, but it's not genuine fruit produced by the Holy Spirit, which is pleasing to God. Ephesians 3.16, we're strengthened with the power in the inner man by the Holy Spirit. And this is why pay attention to the words of the hymns that we sing. Greg and Preston, they spend time doing that. And again, music is to be didactic. It is to teach us something about the works and character of God, not entertain us. One of the greatest hymns, in my opinion, is Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And you'll recall, he is a bulwark who never fails us. Our helper amid the flood. You know, and if we simply try to overcome things in our own strength, our striving will be losing, is what Luther wrote. It's not in us to stand in our own strength. I don't care how strong you are. You can't take it. Outside of Christ and his ministry of the Holy Spirit, failure is a certainty when it's measured by God's standard. We need a humble spirit of dependency and absolutely essential in our Christian walk. The Holy Spirit renews us in the spirit of our minds. Romans 12 would think about that. The renewing of the mind as believers were undergoing a complete transformation in our thinking to learn to think biblically, see the world biblically, develop a biblical worldview, not buy into the lies and the propaganda and disinformation that's been peddled on us in extreme circumstances the past Three years. It's all been a lie, and it all comes from Satan. As I've said before, openly and unashamedly, we are in a worldwide spiritual warfare. And if people have told me, hey, I work with some of these folks, they're not that smart to figure it out. And I say, no, they're not, but Satan is. Our principal fight is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual warfare we're in right now, and we have the weapons of our warfare We have a sword, but it's the sword of truth. It's not the sword that the civil government is to wield in order to do and deal with evildoers. But we need to fight. We need to fight the spiritual fight. We need to stand firm with the truth, and we have the truth. And sadly, we're not doing that the way we should. Throughout Scripture, the believers encouraged over and over again to believe the truth. Stand firm in the truth. 
abide in the truth, teach the truth, rightly handle the word of truth, and in so doing we experience the liberating reality of the truth to set us free. And in the end, that's what every believer must strive to do, commit ourselves to that truth, that body once delivered, to contend earnestly for that. I'm calling particularly the men to become godly men, to stand firm and be courageous, because I don't know what the battle entails the Lord holds tomorrow. I'm told to concern myself with today. And whenever I see falsehoods, and I t- hear people telling lies, whether they're ignorant, try to patiently and lovingly and gently correct them. And when I know they're lying and they know they're lying, I call them out and rebuke them according to God's word. It's not the truth. And if you know something is not the truth and you go along with it, you are complacent. If you know the truth, stand for the truth regardless of the consequences. God will win out in the end. I don't know how he's going to do everything according to his time schedule, but I do know we've been called to do this, and we need to stand firm, and we need to make bold statements regarding God's truth. Well, I'm going to turn to the Lord's table now. How is all this even possible? And I'm going to put forth this morning, and again, I'm unabashed in my views I'm a New Covenant guy. <laughs> I believe we're under the law of Christ. I do not believe the law of Moses is binding on the conscience of a Christian today. Christ is the head of the church. We are to follow his law. Most of that's in a lot with the Mosaic law. You know, Let me just take just a second. Just to explain that, because people have a misunderstanding of that, because I'm often labeled an antinomian means I'm against law. But anybody who knows me and knows this church, we do not preach licentiousness. We never go out and tell people, go out and lie and steal and do all these things that we're under grace. That's a mischaracterization of New Covenant position. Think of this. When the colonists were here under the rule of King George, they were under English law. Well, after the revolution and they, they received their independence and freedom, they instituted a law, new law, which was the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution and some of those laws that we find, even from English common law, were carried over from the English. But it was a new law. So it's just not disregarding the laws of England. In America, it was still Ill- illegal to steal or kill somebody, or rape somebody, just as it had been in England. And it's the same with the New Covenant. Certain aspects of it are contained in the Mosaic Law, you know, of the Ten Commandments. And just so everyone knows my position, I am not a Sabbatarian. I believe Christ clearly is our Sabbath. We are resting in him. We have ceased from works. I think Hebrews 4 supports that. That's my position. I know people that are, are Sabbatarians. It's not a test of fellowship with me on that. For them, sometimes it is. But that's what I believe. And I said, as the older as I've gotten, I'm going to preach the truth, teach the truth as I see it. And I'm trying to do that to convince people biblically and be a Berean to see if what I'm saying is true. Well, the only reason I'm talking about that in light of the New Covenant as that's what we observe in every week in the Lord's table is this idea of this empowering of the Holy Spirit, which they didn't have under the Old Covenant in that sense. They didn't have the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Well, during the days of Babylonian captivity, just some of your biblical history here, the Lord spoke to his people through the prophet Ezekiel, you know, regarding their future. And listen to what God told Ezekiel to tell the house of Israel, I'm about to act on your behalf. Not for your sake. Now, listen to this. But for my holy name, which they have profaned among the nations. I'm going to vindicate the holiness of my great name. God's doing it for his character. He says, the nations will know that I am the Lord, Yahweh. When I prove myself holy among you in their sight. 
I will not only cleanse you of all your filthiness, I will remove the heart of stone that is in you and put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. Ezekiel 36. You will be my people and I will be your God. That's the promise of the new covenant, the better promise. Clearly spelled out in the book of Hebrews to me. Built on better promises. The old is obsolete, done away with. The new is here. Christ established that with his blood. We're getting ready to partake of the Lord's table, which is a remembrance of the establishment of that new covenant based on better promises, the unilateral covenant of God doing it. This is what he's talking about for his namesake. I've got a people I've given my, uh, to my son. I'm going to put a new heart within them because you couldn't do it through the flesh, the old covenant. You know, you obey, you live, you disobey, you die. Well, no one could obey it. And remember, there are 600 and something points of that old covenant law. And you violate one, you violated the whole thing. In like manner, the Lord told the prophet Jeremiah, I will bring my people back to the land of Israel, and I will give them a heart to fear me always. God's going to give you a heart to fear him. You can't do that on your own. I will make an everlasting covenant. This is the eternal covenant we're celebrating with them that I will not turn away from them. I'm not going to turn away from my people. It's not in them. I'm making it for them. I'm making them. I'm removing their filthiness. And I will rejoice over them to do them good. Our God is for us. Who can be against us? Just as I brought calamity on them, so I'm going to bring good on them. You know, evil had characterized both Israel and Judah from their youth. You do a study, you will find that Israel is often referred to not in good terms. They are stiff-necked, rebellious people, which is a depiction of us as sinners. The house of Israel had provoked God with their wicked conduct. We do the same thing. Our nation's doing the same thing today. We can't define what a woman is. He says he created a male and female. We want to kill our unborn now, even after the point where they're alive. That's wicked. We need to stand against it. We've been timid far too long. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. The house of Judah... Spiritually, they turned their backs on God and polluted the temples with idols. They had temple prostitutes. All kinds of sexual immorality going on among the people. Thus, God ultimately destroyed Jerusalem because of her sin and sent his people into captivity. But that's not the end with God's redeemed people. These are the people, us today, that God had given to his son before the foundations of the earth. There would come a day when he would bring his people back to the land of Israel and establish an everlasting covenant. We are in that everlasting covenant right now, this new covenant with the church. There's going to be a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven where we're going to dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. That's where we celebrate every Sunday the Lord's table, this new covenant, this new promise. Our God is for us. He will not leave or forsake us. He's going to give us a new heart. He's going to cause us to walk in a way that's pleasing to Him. He's conforming us to the image of Christ. He will lose none that He's given to His Son. He's going to raise them up and glorify them to be in the eternal state, the age to come, in the presence of the Lord without sin forevermore. That's hope. Thus says the Lord, the words of our God, which are true, Days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. He's done that. I will write my law on their heart. And I will be their God. He is our God. Christ is our personal Savior. And they shall be my people. We are the people of the Lord. I will forgive their iniquities, their sins, their trespasses. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And if God forgets our sin, can we not forgive each other one's sin? 
Are we greater than God when it comes to forgiveness? We're not. And this is our God. This is our Savior that we worship. Well, forgive me for going a little bit over this morning, but I thought these truths were important. I hope it has provided some encouragement this morning to see our God, to worship Him in glory, give Him praise, adoration. And think about this in the new covenant, in this new heart, in the power to walk in His ways that are pleasing to Him, in the establishment of the everlasting eternal covenant, which was planned before the foundations of the world as we are His people.